Hello and welcome to the editor's podcast for the August 2022 edition. We're the two co-editors of the journal, Phil Smith and Geraint Fuller. And Geraint, it's been only a few days since we last met in person at an actual meeting. I know, it's, it's been very exciting, hasn't it, to, to be at a real meeting. I mean, obviously, um, in COVID, we've managed to meet up in all kinds of different ways, but the impact of seeing people in person, the types of conversations people have, uh, the whole interaction is so much, so much nicer. Do you think you'll get used to the distant conversations we have on these Zooms? Well, I've got a bit too used to them, probably, yes. And uh, it, it enables us to go to meetings all around the world and still do a clinic in the afternoon, that sort of thing. So it's definitely got advantages. But seeing people in 3D and uh, seeing their post-COVID beards and this sort of thing was really quite revealing at the recent meeting. So, yeah, I, I, I welcome, very much welcome the return to face-to-face. And so one of the consequences, obviously, is that we've got used to these new and different ways of trying to solve it. And we've been trying to solve the consequences of COVID in different ways. And I suppose quite a number of the papers we've got in this coming edition deal with the consequences that patients have to face up to following various things. And I think how we face up to them, how we help patients through those different things, to a certain extent, uh, is the theme of the beginning of this uh, edition of the journal. So, Phil, I think you're going to take us through our editor's choice which is possibly slightly surprising. It's about orthoses. Yes, this is uh, orthoses for neurological ankles. And this is by Stephen Kirker from Cambridge. It's an unglamorous subject, perhaps, but important because we can make a big difference to our patients by knowing more about this. It's perhaps more of a well, it is indeed badged as this, what neurologists need to understand outside of their specialty. So from that point of view, perhaps an unusual editor's choice, but we feel this is proper practical neurology. And uh, as we read in the in the edition, it is an orthosis it is supporting residual function. It's making the best of residual function, whereas a prosthesis replaces function. So uh, we, we hear these uh, orthoses have been used in Egyptian mummies many thousands of years ago. And perhaps our view of them might be of the sad child wearing calipers when we give money to the disabled. But the field has clearly moved on hugely. Um, so this is focused on the ankle foot orthosis, AFO. And it's focused mainly on drop feet, but particularly those related to spasticity as well, so with, uh, with stroke. What we learn is that the first consideration is does the patient need help in the stance phase rather than just the swing phase? Obviously, it's one thing to catch your toe during swing phase, but if you need help with the stance phase, then the patient will require a more bespoke and moulded ankle-foot orthosis. But if there's no need for this, then you just go to the stock room and get a simple device very quickly, uh, and then the only consideration really is uh, does it look right, does it feel right? But the more complex ones that need bespoke moulding and so forth can take a little while to, to be built. And uh, the point is made, really, that sometimes waiting for those three months for the perfect solution is not as good as going for a slightly imperfect solution but getting there early, because a key point of this paper is to refer early if they have problems in the stance phase and need uh, referral to a specialist orthotist. Because... There are much higher forces here. There's potential for a worsening situation, skin breakdown, etc. 
and loss of confidence, musculoskeletal pain, and so all sorts of reasons why uh, refer early. So I like the paper. It features on the front cover as well, some of these, full of pictures, very, very practical. What was your reading of it, Guy? I think it's very nice because it's one of those situations where this terribly, terribly awful pun coming, um, for the most part, appears as a footnote rather than something that people actually focus on. And, and I think the idea of recognising there's a spectrum and, and what's available, what works, uh, we've all seen different versions coming through, but actually having them presented and laid out with the pros and cons for the different things means that actually as a participant in the conversation, you can help try and understand and steer it. So I think it's, they've done a really nice job of bringing this whole um, relatively Cinderella specialty to light and hopefully will be helpful. Yeah, and uh, actually table one, sort of a easy solution, list of conditions and situations and their solution. So you know, we could perhaps pin that onto our wall and, uh, and know exactly uh, what we're referring for. Uh, and I think another point made is that the evidence for it, the trials, etc., are quite hard to get because each one is so individualised, you can't really group uh, people together very well and say, well, you know, this works and that works. So I, I think that it is an area that is needing some further research as well. And I think, I, I don't know, I'm sure you've seen lots of patients who've been offered foot drop splints of one sort or another, and a lot of the time they've abandoned them because for whatever reason they don't seem to do the job. And I think the fact that you can see there's a spectrum and that maybe the reason they didn't get on with them was because actually it was trying to solve a swing phase as opposed to a stance phase problem. And obviously, if you're trying to solve the wrong problem, then the solution isn't very successful. Yeah. Listeners can hear more about this from the podcast uh, with Amy Ross Russell, which will focus specifically on this paper and we'll be talking to Stephen Kirker. The next paper then is about driving. Jeremy Rees from Queen Square and the team from the uh, DVLA that's the UK Driving Licensing Authority, have written a paper called Eligibility to Drive and Neurology. And there's an editorial that goes with this as well. So, Karen, what, what was your reading of this paper? Talking about consequences, I mean, it's, this is very often a, a major issue in the clinic where you see somebody who's had a blackout, a seizure at night or whatever. And from their perspective, you're worried about, have they got a tumour? Is there a have you got epilepsy? Is there something that's driving it? But their issue is, suddenly I've been told I can't drive. The consequence of this event, which seems to have been over and gone, and all your tests are normal, suddenly are, are really quite significant. And I think um, exploring driving and its regulation and the thinking behind it uh, is what this, 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 uh, this pair of papers actually tries to address. And I think it's something we've been slightly shy of for a while, partly because we try and take an international perspective and inevitably the driving regulations are local legislative solutions to the problem that we all have. However, what we decided to do was to focus on the DBLA guidelines in the UK. They do address some of the international issues and broadly speaking, use that as the basis for discussion. And I think what they've done very nicely is to take you through the, the reasoning behind the uh, driving regulations as presented in the UK. And inevitably, a large chunk of this focuses on blackouts and seizures, uh, the evidence for the different uh, approach. And, and I think the idea, for example, that the standard is whether there's a 20% risk of a seizure within uh, the next year for a, a standard license. Um, clearly, if you're driving a lorry or you have an, a, 
more complicated driving, driving a bus or whatever, then the rules are different. And there, the estimate is to try to have a 2% risk. And, and clearly, those are really quite dramatically different standards. And they talk about the, the rationale for that and how to try and um, develop the evidence base to achieve that. And to a certain extent, the, the, the detail will be familiar to most neurologists, but I think the reasoning has been quite helpful. Yeah. Over to you, Phil. I was going to say that the, the, the work of what to say in this podcast has been done for us by Tony Marsden, actually, because he has quite nicely given an overview of the driving issues and told us really that the reason that this paper is needed is because we need to understand the, the striking of the balance between protecting the rights of the driver and the rights of the public but also to take the heterogeneity into account, the heterogeneity of the individual driver, their experience, how much they drive, their degree of risk-taking behaviour, etc., and the heterogeneity of their medical condition, because, of course, no two blackouts are the same. And there is a sort of a tension between the fairness of the rules and their ease of implementation. The more, the fairer you are to the individual, the more you try to make it granular and bespoke to the individual, the more complex it is to implement and it just can't be implemented after a bit. So that's why it sometimes is bound to appear unfair uh, that all tr- all seizures are treated the same. So, but of course, Tony Marsden, the evidence man, really, he doesn't do anything without the evidence. And his big thing in the editorial is, is how the evidence is put together and whether we accept the evidence as that driving the policies that you've just outlined. And I think, in a way, within both the paper and discussed by Tony in his editorial, is the contrast between the blackout and seizure-related uh, regulations, where you can draw a line in the sand and take this 2% and 20%, which are the, the markers, and say, well, can we generate evidence that mirrors that? And it's quite interesting that the EU, for example, uh, was working towards a 20% rule in parallel with the DVLA, e- even before uh, Brexit and all the things that happened. The problem really then comes in with the neurodegenerative disorders as to how can you try and produce a similar level of evidence to uh, replicate that. And they talk about uh, how some of the scales can be used to try and work out what's gone on. But I I think, as you rightly say, that this is a a clear case where we need better information to try and sort it out. I think within within the paper, there's also a very nice worked example taking uh, the granularity approach that I think you mentioned in in relation to a brain tumour and the way in which the different interventions and treatments, the grading, the genetics of the tumour and so on all feed in to the uh, specific set of regulations that would apply to an individual as they go through their illness. Yeah, because I I think we're all very familiar with the, well, the difficult consultation of telling someone who's had a blackout about the driving, but much less familiar with when to intervene with someone with a degenerative condition, as you say, when does someone with Parkinson's or Alzheimer's, when do they become unfit to drive? So I think that that discussion here is important and clearly is ongoing. Uh, they, make, they do make the point, though, Phil, that the, that the decision to allow people to drive is not our decision. And within the context of those degenerative diseases, the way certainly the DVLA in the UK tries to address it is by giving people with those kind of diagnoses Uh, shorter duration licences to try and reflect what the anticipated progression. Um, And I think in a way it's a question of having that dialogue and for everyone to engage with it. 
Yeah, really good point, because uh, we're fortunate, I think, in the UK that actually it is the driver's responsibility to report and the decision rests with the DVLA. So they no need to uh, fail to attend our consultations for fear of what we'll say about the driving. It, it isn't us that does the licensing. And that isn't the case around the world. And clearly there are some states in the USA where the responsibility is with the neurologist to report. And uh, some countries, we, we're here in India, where epilepsy leads to a permanent ban and therefore almost definitely widespread flouting of the rule. So I, th I think it's, it's, it's hopefully going to be the kind of paper which will help people think about the way in which they, their local services or their local driving regulations are implemented and might uh, allow perhaps people to rethink policy. Yeah. Uh, one comment, if I may, on the uh, little cutting from the Daily Mail, 1928, epileptic man banned for life. And someone saying, how could he ever be uh, allowed to have driven? And the, the interesting thing was that he had a woman employer. And so in 1928, this was seen as remarkable. And it was a woman's fault, therefore, that she'd uh, employed him. So uh, a nice little hark back to, uh, to former times when prejudice was rife about epilepsy and sexism. Excellent. So, so coming back to some other consequences, I think the other interesting review we have is on siderosis, which obviously is a, a relatively uncommon thing. And for the most part, the consequence of previous trauma or injury. And I think you're going to take us through what's really a very nice overview of siderosis. Yes. Yeah, so this is called classical infratentorial superficial siderosis of the central nervous system. And it's by David Waring and the team from uh, Queen Square predominantly. So this is a paper written by experts. They, they run a superficial siderosis clinic. They have lots of experience. They tell us about their new classification of it. But I think the bottom line is there are still a lot of unknowns about this condition. It's probably well known because uh, it is a classical condition. It presents typically with progressive hearing loss. Almost 100% of people have that. But also vestibular loss, ataxia, occasionally myelopathy, rarely dementia even. And in the history is usually a uh, report of something happening to uh, some low-grade bleeding at some stage, a dural defect in the spinal column or in the posterior fossa, some history of craniospinal trauma, even brachial plexus avulsion, uh, but maybe a history of um, spontaneous intracranial hypotension or neurosurgery, often decades before, actually. And I was interested to read in it that big vascular lesions don't lead to this, usually. So there's no point doing an angiogram. That's not going to help you. It's, it's, a, it's a small oozing of uh, venous blood that usually does it. And there's uh, an update on the sort of imaging that we need the paramagnetic sensitive MR sequences. So it's called gradient recalled echo T2 and susceptibility weighted imaging. I mean, the, these should, will show the uh, hemosiderin around the eighth nerves and around the cerebellar vermis, etc. We hear a bit about newer treatments, deferiprone, which is an iron collating agent, which apparently can be effective. It seems to be effective maybe at clearing some of the hemosiderin. But the other thing I learned from this is it's the hemosiderin is not the offending chemical. It's the fact that the hemosiderin system is saturated and therefore unbound ferrous iron becomes the toxic agent. So actually, even if the hemosiderin starts to clear on imaging, it doesn't necessarily get better. And actually, these authors are, 
are a bit sceptical about whether deferiprone is really any good. I, I highlight that because we did have a report back in 2021 from Alberta of using deferiprone in this condition, and they, they did seem to promote it, but that was based on a single case. Phil, I think in that case, and indeed in this case, they do make the point that if you can find a defect and close it, that's actually the most helpful thing that you can do, at least to try and prevent progression, even though the evidence base for that is probably bit poor too. Yeah, and um, and they finish, of course, with the current gaps in knowledge. And this is quite a long section, actually. <laughs> <laughs> includes the, the prevalence, the natural history, the genetic susceptibility, biomarkers, efficacy of treatments. There's it, a lot of unknown. So yeah. a lot of work for this specialist group to do, I think, still. And I think what's actually quite nice, I mean, again, obviously, it's dealing with the consequences of a previous set of problems. And they highlight the fact that you need an MDT approach and supporting people with hearing and balance issues and so on. But I think it's quite an interesting notion that we're having an update of where a specific group of people are, where they are with their thinking about an unusual condition for which we don't really have good evidence to allow us to to drive um, management decisions and changes. And And in a way... As the theme of the next sort of group of patients, the papers that we have, uh, and uh, we're starting with the lessons from the video EEG telemetry unit from uh, Julia Navarro and uh, Khalid Hamandi. And, and what they've done is they've taken a, a series of cases that they have found educational in the video telemetry unit and uh, discussed how to do it. And, and I think whilst obviously most of us think, well, that's not particularly relevant to me because I don't do video telemetry, what they've recognised is that all of us are seeing increasingly commonly, uh, indeed I saw a a, a patient with the video recordings this morning, uh, where relatives are taking videos on the telephone. And what you're essentially doing is having to make judgments on uh, the seizure semiology on the basis of uh, video recordings and often without the benefit of the build-up of the the changes and the concomitant EEG. But the whole point is you are having to work out how to look at them. And, And they talk about how to approach that to look for the stereotype nature. And inevitably, they've chosen cases which have been tricky in one way or another, but to highlight those cases. So I think it's a very nice paper and it's got videos linked. So it's well worth looking at online so you have the opportunity to to look at those. And it it might even encourage you to be a bit more excited about looking at EEGs because uh, they have been very important in uh, disentangling these complicated cases. What did, what did you make, Phil? Well, well, I felt that it built upon what we had as, as our editor's choice back in December, where Matthew Walker and Fumida Chowdhury sort of laid the foundation, really, for how best to use video telemetry. This is a sort of how to do it in practice and highlighting some lessons. So an ideal way of doing it, really. And in their six cases, they each come with a lesson. The main ones, I think, are that... Uh, frontal lobe seizures may be misdiagnosed as non-epileptic because of uh, things like the normal EEG during the recording, the fact they look bizarre, the fact that patients report being awake even though they're getting bilateral movements, that sort of thing. The other lesson is that people with non-epileptic seizures are easily labelled as epilepsy and may get as far as pre-surgical assessment. And again, some of the features which supported non-epileptic seizures, which I, I've, I mean, of course, we all know they're long, the eyes usually closed at the onset, the breathing is rapid. But one of the things I found helpful was that the vocalizations of non-epileptic seizures uh, tend to come during and after, whereas in the seizure, the uh, epileptic seizure, they, they happen at the beginning. 
The other lesson is that in one of the cases, there's an ictal asystole, which complicated the seizure, but uh, again, may need its own specific intervention. So, yeah, I very much like this paper, actually. I think that um, tells us what we can learn from this sort of thing and, uh, you know, follows on from a previous paper in the journal. Excellent. Yeah, and uh, and also I think an opportunity to, to perhaps sit around a computer at work now that we're all allowed to sit around and uh, to look at them together and perhaps discuss them. On the same theme, we have um, another uh, specialist unit that uh, is sharing their experience and trying to help us in the absence of uh, the kind of level of evidence that makes everything so much easier. Um, And that's uh, talking about IIH and pregnancy. And Phil, I think you're going to take us through this. Yeah, so as you say, these are the experts again. We turn to Alex Sinclair and her team in Birmingham. And they previously wrote the IIH International Consensus Guideline. And of course, pregnancy is uh, an extreme end of the spectrum here of issues in IIH. It's a major issue. It's certainly a threat to vision because, of course, you gain weight in pregnancy. You can't use conventional medications. And it's a temporary thing for nine months. Therefore, you perhaps don't put long-term interventions in place, you might use some holding or bridging measures. Uh, it's it's an absolute open and shut case for an MDT, not just the neurologist, ophthalmologist, neurosurgeon for an IIH, but also the obstetrician in as well. So we need MDT decisions here. The focus of the paper is on pre-pregnancy planning, really, how to get things right before the pregnancy, and that's really sensible. So Using hormonal contraception is perfectly okay in IIH, apparently. Uh, Need to um, try to get the weight optimised because one of the things is the further gain in weight in pregnancy is a real problem. And uh, they've got a chart, which is figure one, about how much weight you should be gaining. And you should be gaining between 12 and 16 kilograms in a normal pregnancy. But if you're already overweight or obese, then it's much, much less than that. So that's a sort of helpful practical guide. The use of tablets, though, is a problem. I mean, it's all very well to say don't use them, which they do. But, you know, in in practice, uh, this needs sort of a a bit of shared decision making. And um, because, of course, cetazolamide, although teratogenic in animals, isn't proven teratogenic in 50 human pregnancies. And so that makes it a bit different from topiramate, where there is a uh, the widespread use in epilepsy means that it's uh, featured on the pregnancy registries and it does have a risk of major congenital malformation of getting on for four times the background. So topiramate, definitely a no-no. Uh, well, a no-no, but a discussion with the patient. Oh, the other thing to mention is about um, serial lumbar punctures. I mean, it's it's something that we wouldn't normally do in IIH, of course, but in pregnancy it's justified uh, because you're trying to tide people over. And if you do use them, they recommend using the, the old-fashioned cutting needles, quinque needles, and halving the opening pressure and monitoring the papilledema uh, using OCT for the optic nerve head volume and the, the retinal nerve fibre layer thickness. So... Yeah, this is a useful paper, much needed, I think, written, uh, you know, we can be confident it's written by people with a lot of experience in this area, and hopefully we won't need it too much, but there's definitely going to be a need for it in our practice. So I I think the problem we have with IH is that we need a sort of slightly more radical breakthrough. I mean, at the moment, uh, the range of treatments we have is very simplistic and narrow, and uh, obviously weight loss, which is so, so essential, is actually very hard for us to 
to try and help patients with it. I mean, and so obviously the question is, is there a better way? And, and is there a better way? Because I think we had a chat informally before about the some drugs for diabetes, didn't we? Uh, yeah, so so, the, so the, there are some new uh, agents um, which are being looked at by NICE, which uh, can help with patients' weight loss, uh, semiglitan being one in particular. So I think they look like there are going to be some agents to help patients with weight loss where weight is an essential and uh, important part of the condition. So I think this is watch this space but I think there, there certainly looks like this may be a possibility. Moving on to our next paper, which again is coming from a group of experts. I mean, the CSF biomarkers and from, for dementia, which comes from uh, really quite a, a long list of uh, consultants, all with great expertise in dementia, including uh, Jonathan Schott as the senior author, but Nick Fox, Kath Mumry, uh, Jonathan Rohrer. Um, and broadly speaking, what they're providing us with is an update as to how they're using biomarkers in dementia at the national, at their their memory clinics, and really trying to bring us up to speed as to what they're doing. And and it's a very nice paper because it disentangles the uh, thinking behind the pathologies and behind the tests that we've got. So broadly, they recognise that you've got sort of three main pathologies in Alzheimer's, amyloid, uh, tau, and neurodegeneration. And you've got corollaries for each of these in terms of uh, imaging, uh, for example, the amyloid PET, a tau PET, or um, uh, just looking for atrophy. But also looking at the CSF, you can uh, look at uh, the A-beta 42-40 ratio, the level of phosphorylated tau, uh, the level of uh, total tau, and uh, neurofilament light chains. And with each of these, you can get different pieces of information. And in a way, what they're presenting is the current interpretation, the current approach to how uh, to using these different markers and how uh, effective they are at trying to distinguish, for example, between Alzheimer's and uh, non-Alzheimer's patients. Uh, Alzheimer's uh, patients, or rather patients presenting with what seems like a focal frontal pathology um, that's related to Alzheimer's as opposed to a frontodental dementia. Um, now, for, for all of these different things, there is uh, reasonable, there's supporting evidence, but clearly there isn't really quite uh, a complete story here. And you can see the story emerging. They talk about just the simple practicalities of, of the, how you do the CSF, what special tubes you have to use, uh, you know, various problems that can, can come along just in the sampling. So they take you all the way through their current approach. And you feel that this is going to be the, the germ, uh, the, the seed of what's going to be used in the future. But I think uh, to a certain extent, that's then going to partly depend on how it feeds into the disease-modifying trials, which are obviously ongoing and uh, we're all very hopeful for. Yeah, yeah. This isn't about current practice for most neurologists, but it's definitely something that we need to know about and will be coming our way. In the future, when we have monoclonal antibodies or antisense oligonucleotide treatments on board, we're going to need, A, a definite diagnosis, and therefore we need to distinguish Alzheimer's from other sorts of uh, uh, dementia, 
but also we will need lack of heterogeneity within the trial. So we need people with all a, a common problem, and that's why these CSF biomarkers might uh, might come in. And you know we've perhaps been pleasantly surprised in CJD, where it used to be, you know, uh, used to be some fairly blunt biomarkers. And suddenly we have something, the RT Quick, which is 100% specific in the hands yes. of the Edinburgh group, 100%. So we now know for certain whether someone has sporadic CJD from their CSF. And, you know, if we could have something approaching that for Alzheimer's, then we're well on the way for getting uh, uh, much better treatment trials when, when we're able to do that. So this is, it isn't exactly practical practical neurology because it's not practical quite yet but it's the kind of thing that so many of us are thinking about it's useful to have an update from the people who are right at the cutting edge yeah so a um, couple of points from it um, I noticed the LPs in their units are done by an advanced nurse practitioner independently I mean that that is something that we need much more of around the UK and around the world probably uh, we, this is an ideal role for an advanced nurse practitioner the other point I was going to raise with the Garrett is that uh, the terminology seems to have changed from Alzheimer's disease to Alzheimer's dementia. I don't know if you're uh, you're going with Alzheimer's dementia as yet, but I think it's it's seen as uh, a, a syndrome of a dementia, really, rather than a more uh, widespread disease. Um, we've then got one case we thought we'd discuss because it's talking about a reasonably well-described pathologically diagnosis, which uh, has been presented clinically, and it's quite an interesting challenge. So what do you make of this, Phil? So this is called uh, fibrocartilaginous embolism, and it's an under-recognised cause of young spinal stroke, and uh, it's from Jonathan Sturm in uh, Newcastle, New South Wales in Australia. So this is a condition probably that is grossly underdiagnosed. I would say. It's the sort of thing you can diagnose only at post-mortem at the moment, and uh, therefore it gets diagnosed in those where they have a high spinal cord problem that leads to death and uh, then is diagnosed at post-mortem. But I, I first heard about this in 1996 on, in the JNMP, but it, it was actually first described in 1961. And the... The, 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 the mechanism of this, and Garrett, I'm just going to try this on you to see if I've got it, actually. The mechanism seems to be that you have a very vascular intervertebral disc, as happens in young people, teenagers included, and you get a sudden vertebral, sorry, vertical vertebral force, which squashes this vascular disc into the vertebral body either side and you end up with this schmalls node in pouching of the disc into the vertebral body and uh, if you then on top of that do a valsalva maneuver then this sort of bits of semi-fluid nucleus pulposus material goes into small arteries and the valsalva pushes it retrogradely uh, into the arterial circulation, which then goes antegradely into the spinal cord and causes an infarct. So the sort of situation where it occurs might be someone who jumps from a high wall, uh, jars their disc, uh, and then carries on doing exertion, maybe running away from the police or something, and they are uh, valsalvering and it's, it moves the, the thing around. So uh, the, the typical situation is that people differ from 
the usual spinal artery stroke in that it's usually young people, particularly young women. There's pain at the onset, which doesn't usually happen in a cord infarct. There's a latent interval of a few hours whilst it progresses, whereas the usual one, it's worst at the beginning and then it might improve. And the prognosis is poor. So it seems to be a really important condition, but you just can't diagnose it in life. Yeah, I mean, I think the case that we was presented was a patient who survived and uh, broadly speaking, they're making the diagnosis on circumstantial evidence in that there was a, a disc which actually progressed um, with more degenerative change in the, uh, the interval of the patient's deterioration uh, and that was adjacent and uh, anatomically appropriate for the site of the cord infarct, yeah. which produces this owl-eyed appearance, which is very characteristic for ischemic changes. So, so I think it's the kind of situation where um, we have a pathological syndrome um, and it, we don't have a good way of translating that into a, a clinical syndrome. But uh, given the lack of alternative explanations, they do make what I think is actually quite a persuasive case that, that was the diagnosis in this patient. Yeah, and, and I just wanted to make a, an observation about surfer's myelopathy as well, which is something that we have heard about. And it got me very worried when I was doing COBRA during yoga, you know, because the mechanism might be, it says, of doing a sort of this uh, back extension. But I think actually what is happening instead, I think the surfer probably has fallen off their board and jarred their back and then carried on exercising, doing valsavas and probably end up with this myelopathy from that. So I think any authors who have any yoga-related neurological disorders, if you were to submit them, I think they would probably be reviewed very favourably, at least by one of the editors. And actually, in the same issue, we've got um, a mere my neurological illness about this very condition. So this is Tom Den Heyer from the Netherlands, who, whose title is Spinal Cord Ischemia Due to Fibrocartilaginous Embolism Query. You know, it was never definitely diagnosed, but he's read about it and thinks that might be the case. And it's sort of half confirmed by the fact that there's also a bit of an infarct of the posterior part of the T10 vertebral body. Interesting that this sort of rational 45-year-old neurologist um, becomes a bit irrational with his neurological illness. He started to use omega-3 and unashamedly says that whereas he used to follow the evidence because it's him, uh, he's uh, decided not to. So interesting observation of the personal experience of neurological illness. And I think, again, it's that, it's that fact that this is a very much a circumstantial diagnosis. And I think he, he's the case he presents in his own words um, it is extremely plausible. Yeah. So we, we, we finish then, Guy, with two beautiful editorials, don't we, from these um, older, experienced uh, gentlemen. We have Ian Bone talking about the art of doing nothing. Uh, he's from uh, Glasgow. And Graham Flint of What Value is Experience. He's, he's a neurosurgeon from, uh, from Birmingham. So... All right, what do you think about these beautiful papers? Well, so um, obviously we, we had a very nice paper from Graham Flint and after discussion there was a suggestion that we should ask him to sort of reflect on, on what he had learned and what value of experience. And, and, and I think it is very nice to, to take a step back and, uh, you know, there are lots of bits in here which one would be very happy to quote. Um, it takes 10 years to learn how to do an operation, 10 more to know when to do it, and another 10 to know when not to do it. And he, he makes the point that actually surgeons spend their whole career learning something which actually hopefully they're not going to need to do. They should spend their whole time trying to become redundant. 
because surgery is such a blunt solution to so many problems. If there's a better way, that that, that way is usually better. Um, so he, he produces an extremely nice and um, self-deprecating assessment, the idea that training is now so much better so that everyone knows so much more, um, everyone has access to the internet, and yet uh, what does the slightly more forgetful but experienced clinician have to offer? And, and I think he, he, he persuades me that the, uh, the answer is a lot. Yeah, you mentioned there's loads of quotes, but I love this one. He says, younger consultants know more than their seniors in terms of up-to-date facts and data, but not necessarily as much about the possible consequences of their decisions. <laughs> and uh, he, you know, this long-term view that uh, brings this caution with experience, this uh, sensible precaution. And and Ian Bone, in, in his editorial, The Art of Doing Nothing, this could have been a quotation from David Thrush in Plymouth years ago. He, he would always be recommending doing nothing. And doing nothing is an active thing. I think, as, uh, as Ian says in the final words of his uh, editorial, we must reframe doing nothing as doing something through communicating and involving our patients in the process. It's not just intervening, doing a test to get rid of them for three months, doing a, uh, giving medication just to be seen to be doing something at all. It is sometimes better, often better actually, to take a step back and use your experience and wisdom uh, and judgment to, uh, to say this is inappropriate to do tests and uh, it is better to do nothing. Uh, and and, and as simple things like um, if you're about to order a test, you should before you do any test, you should ask yourself, what would I do if the test is abnormal and what would I do if the test is normal? And if the answer is the same, really, do you need to do the test? So it's very beautifully written and a very nice reflective piece as to how to practice neurology and actually how to capture um, what was obviously a huge level of experience built up at a time when the investigative and therapeutic armamentarium was extremely weak and you inevitably had to try and help people as best you could with, with very limited tools. And, and uh, I think he, he persuades you that there was much to offer with this approach. Yeah, and, and, and still is. So that's our issue for August 2022. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast. Hope you got this far in listening to it. There are other ways you can uh, access the PN podcast, but um, please use the platform of your choice. And uh, I hope you enjoy reading the issue in full, uh, having had this taster from the from the podcast. And also that you'll listen to Amy's uh, exploration of orthoses on the editor's choice paper. So from now on, it. Until the next time, it's goodbye from me, Phil Smith. And goodbye from me, Karen Fuller.